The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. If you've got Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand on up. We've got some of those coming around. Uh, You can use them for today, or if you don't have a Bible of your very own, you can take that with you. All right, that's our gift uh, to you. You can have one of those. So if you don't have a Bible, I'd suggest you just raise your hand on up, and they'll come around and bring you one. Have you ever uh, heard the phrase, I've got good news and I've got bad news? Usually it's followed by a statement like, uh, which one do you want first? Uh, I don't know about you, I always take the bad news first, all right, because it seems like the good news always uh, cheers me up somehow, and uh, so uh, Jesus in in John chapter 16, uh, he's going to talk about both good news and he's going to talk about bad news, Uh, and so uh, Jesus really, uh, any news that's coming from Jesus is not necessarily bad news because he sees the big picture, amen? And so here's the deal is, is so many times I get caught up uh, in what is good for me temporarily, what is good for me long term, and good news and in bad news. And so uh, today we're going to read uh, Jesus begin to talk to his boys about good news and bad news. Uh, but what I want to tell you th- is this. We've been going through the Gospel of John And right here in chapter 16, we're going to close that out. And this is really the last time that Jesus uh, technically uh, takes a moment and teaches his disciples. All right, because in John chapter 17, uh, it's really a prayer. And it's a long prayer. It takes a whole chapter. And so in 17, we see Jesus praying. And then after that, he's betrayed. After that, he's tried. After that, he's taken to the cross. After that, he raises. And so here's the deal is chapter 16 is really the last kind of opportunity that Jesus takes to say, I want to teach you something here. All right, and so uh, we should understand what Jesus is saying. And so uh, if I go a little long with you, it's because there's a lot of stuff here, uh, but hopefully it will penetrate our hearts. And so look in chapter 16. We're going to pick it up in verse 5. This is red letter in my Bible, and so that means Jesus is speaking it. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him. That's God. I'm going to the Father who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And so Jesus says, he says, I'm going to go to the Father, and I'm going to leave this place, and immediately sorrow fills their heart. Wouldn't that you? I mean, I mean imagine this. Imagine this picture. You're on the shore, you're in a boat with your brothers, with your father, and you're casting out nets, and you're uh, making a living as a fisherman, and then this rabbi comes walking up on the shore and says, I want you to put down your nets, and I want you to follow me. Okay? That's pretty noble. So what they do is they put down their nets and they follow him. And so for three years, basically, they've been following this guy and they've been homeless. They've been looking for food. They've been looking for supplies. They've been, they've been just wandering around watching this man, Jesus, work and testify about the glory of God. And all of a sudden, after three years, he says, actually, I'm leaving you. And so sorrow fills their hearts. Yeah, right? What about the last three years? What about all this, all this putting down your nets? And I was making a good living there. What do you mean you're leaving? And so it says that sorrow has filled their hearts. And so they probably received this as bad news. What do you mean you're leaving? That's, that's bad news. 
Look in verse 5 again. Now I'm going to him who sent me. You don't ask where you're going, but because I've said these things, you have sorrow that's filled your hearts. Verse 7, here's the good news. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. It's actually a benefit for you, is what he says. It's to your advantage that I'm leaving. I'm going to go, and this is actually a benefit for you, because that I go away, for if I do not go away, then the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him, the helper, to you. Verse 8. And when he comes, the helper, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. See, Jesus right here, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, when I go, it'll actually be a benefit to you because what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And it's actually to your advantage that I send the Spirit to you because the Spirit's going to help you. And so I could talk an entire series on the Holy Spirit. But today I just want to focus on a few things that the Holy Spirit does and why is it a help that he sends the Holy Spirit? How is it that the Holy Spirit's going to help them? How is it to their advantage that God, that Jesus leaves and sends the Spirit? How is that a benefit to them? How is that going to help them? What is the Spirit actually going to do? Now there's 50 things that the Scripture says that the Holy Spirit does. All right? But today I just want to talk about the three. He says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's your advantage that I go, and the Helper will come, and I will send him to you. But when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. He will convict the world concerning righteousness. And he will convict the world concerning judgment. Now, how many of you right now get this picture that that's good news? It doesn't seem like an advantage to me, right? Because uh, being convicted of something is not very popular or not very romantic, all right? When you think of convicted, what do you think of? I think of a convict, right? It's someone who's been charged as guilty. And so he says, I'm going to send you a helper, and he's going to tell you how guilty you are. Here's the deal. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin. The Holy Spirit will tell us, will tell you, you are guilty. He'll come and he'll convict the world of righteousness. Of how we are not righteous. How every one of us has missed the mark. That this is the holy standard, the righteous standard of God. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to tell you you're guilty of missing this mark. And not only that, but when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll help you by telling you that there is a judgment that comes from missing the mark in the fact that you're guilty. But it's good news. Because without that, There's no salvation. You see, without the Holy Spirit revealing that truth to us, you and I will never cry out for a Savior, will we? Unless the Holy Spirit comes and begins to convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment, then we will have no need for salvation. 
It's to your advantage that when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict you of these things. Because when he convicts you of these things, then it will lead you into the truth. And when you're in the truth, you will understand that your need for a Savior is so great and you'll call out to God. When you call out to God, it'll bring about salvation. That's why it's an advantage. Now hear me. Because salvation that comes through the Holy Spirit of convicting you of sin and convicting you of righteousness and convicting you of judgment is not a corporate conviction. It's not, it's not a, a, a particular denomination. It's not for a certain group. It's not for a certain type of people. The conviction that comes to the Holy Spirit is very personal. It is not corporate. Although the corporate call of the gospel goes out, it must be received personally. The Holy Spirit must come to you personally. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He'll convict you of your sin and your guilt and your unrighteousness and that there is a judgment that is placed on you. And so here's the deal. I don't care if you've been confirmed or baptized or circumcised or Christianized or sent or ordained or any of that, if the Holy Spirit has not come to you and convicted you personally of sin and personally of righteousness and personally of judgment and you've not responded to that by faith in Jesus Christ, then then you're just blanketing this salvation for all and the fact is, is that you're not saved. It's to your advantage that he comes and he convicts you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so the Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus. And without the Holy Spirit, we're lost. Let me give you some examples of this, of how the Spirit leads us into truth. The fact is that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, and when the Holy Spirit comes to you and convicts you of sin, you realize that Jesus bore my sin. He does bear our sin. But when you begin to believe that Jesus bore your sin, it's freeing. 1 Peter 2.24 says that Jesus bore our sins on a tree in his body and his flesh. Galatians 2.20, it says, I've been crucified with Christ. Do you hear it? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is very personal for Paul right here. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself up for me. That's a very personal conviction there. And when it comes to judgment, that he obtained righteousness for me. That he bore my sins. That I have passed through judgment. In John chapter 5, it says, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He has not come into judgment. Those of you who doubt salvation, who doubt where you are with God, the first question is, has the Holy Spirit convicted you of any sin personally? Has the Holy Spirit talked to you about what the mark is of righteousness and how Jesus was the only one who met that mark? 
If you're doubting your salvation here today, has the Holy Spirit come to you and talked to you about sin and righteousness and judgment? And have you responded personally to that? Or have you just joined a church somewhere? Today, Jesus still offers himself to you personally. Today, Jesus continues to offer himself to the Holy Spirit and says, you can be mine. Now look in John 16, starting in verse 13. I'm telling you I could spend a lot of time on the Holy Spirit. I want to tell you that the Holy Spirit is not an it, it's a he. It's not a force like what the Jedis use, like gravity. That the Holy Spirit is fully God. You ever doubt that the Holy Spirit is not a he or part of God, then then you can read this text again. But I'm going to point this out to you. When the Spirit of truth comes, he, the Holy Spirit, will guide you into all truth. For he, the Holy Spirit, will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he, the Holy Spirit, hears, he, the Holy Spirit, will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, and that the Father is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Do you see that the Holy Spirit talks to us about all truth? The Holy Spirit talks to us about faith, about righteousness, about grace, about forgiveness, about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He unveils all truth. And as he does, I'm so thankful that he does, salvation comes. Salvation comes. Now look, look with me in verse 20. Jesus is going to talk about the bad news. He says, listen, I tried to cheer you up a little bit. I tried to tell you that the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to reveal to you all truth. But I'm going I'm going away. Verse 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament, but the world will rejoice. Why will the world rejoice? Because the Holy Spirit comes and shows us what it means to be saved. He reveals to us all truth. The world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. That's good news. Anybody need some joy? He says, he paints this picture like a woman who gives birth to a child. That's what he says. This is how sorrows turn into joy. He says, it's like a woman who gives birth to a child. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. You probably already know I've never given birth to a child. True? I've been in the room twice. And so... When he says it's like a woman who's given birth to a child, I'll just add, not necessarily I'm adding to the scriptures, but I'll just add he probably means without an epidural. (laughs) Probably, right? Because it's probably all natural and it's probably very painful. And so uh, one time I was in the room with an epidural, the other time I was not. And let me tell you, there was anguish. (laughs) There was pain. A little messy. Right? 
But he says it's like a woman who gives birth to a child. There's pain and there's anguish and there's sorrow. But when the new life comes, oh, you forget that real quick, don't you? When the new life comes, then there's joy and the sorrow begins to disappear and the anguish begins to disappear. And Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be in anguish. I'm going into pain and you're going to see me crushed on the cross. You'll have sorrow. But when new life comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, and gives you new life, you'll have joy. You will have joy. Joy comes with new life. Now watch this, because verse 22 is the key to our text. When a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because the hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she will no longer remember her anguish, the joy that the human being is being born into the world. Verse 22. So also, in that same way, you have sorrow now, but I see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. The joy that comes in the midst of our sorrow is the joy that comes from seeing Jesus. Look at it. I will see you again. When you see me again, your hearts will rejoice. It will lead to your joy. Joy comes from beholding and seeing Jesus. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal that truth to you today. Because the text doesn't offer any hope to those who don't find their joy in Jesus. You hear me? The joy comes from seeing Jesus. If seeing Jesus doesn't offer you hope, and it probably reveals that you want things other than Jesus. Eric, what do you mean? How, how do you mean? What, is, what does that mean? How do I know? Well, let me ask you a question. I've asked this before here. I'll continue to ask it. But when you think of heaven, what do you think of? Many would say, I think of peace. I think of, I, think, uh, I think of streets of gold. I think of a big house with lots and lots of room. 
When I think of heaven, I think of, I think of a, a place to live. I think of, uh, I think of a, a place where there's no more bills. Amen? When I think of heaven, I think of no more pain, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more wars, no more hurt, no more work. I won't have to go to work anymore. That's what I think of when I think of heaven. When I think of heaven, I think of no more tribulation. Some would say, I, when I think of heaven, I, I think that I get to see my mom and my dad, and, and, and maybe I'll get to see my grandparents or, or those that I love that I've lost. When I think of heaven, I think of being reunited with those whom I love. If Jesus wasn't there, would it still be heaven? Some say, if I had all those things, it would be heaven. Would you rejoice in seeing Jesus, the thing that makes heaven, heaven, is that Jesus is there. And so today, I want to ask, is Jesus your joy? Would Jesus be the longing of your heart? Would Jesus be that thing that you so richly long for and look for? Because Jesus says, when you see me, your hearts will rejoice. And nothing will take that joy from you. Let me just be honest with you. Hell is hot. Nobody wants that. Right? I mean, if it's true that there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth and there's fire, nobody wants that. Let me be honest with you, guilt is heavy. Nobody wants to feel guilty. And so, so many, they come to Jesus and they say, okay, well, if Jesus can help me not feel guilty, I'll take that. If Jesus can somehow help me with my marriage, if Jesus can help me with my kids, if Jesus can help me fulfilling my dream, if Jesus can help me with my job, if Jesus can help me with my bills, if Jesus can help me with my pain, then I'll take that. Forgiveness, freedom from guilt, ticket out of hell, ticket from death. You don't have to be born again to want those things, guys. But you have to be born again to want Jesus. That's a different call. Some people say that forgiveness makes the gospel the good news. Some say that being saved from hell makes the gospel the good news. Maybe freed from a guilty conscience makes the gospel the good news. Hear me. All of those things are only good news because they bring us to Jesus. God is what we get. It's good news because we get God. And when we get God, nothing will take your joy from you. Amen?
And so the gospel is that we get Jesus himself. Look at it. So also you'll have sorrow now. Yeah. But I will see you again. And when I see you again, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus says, sorrow here, but when you see me, when you see me, no one will take that joy from you. And so if you're here today and your heart does not rejoice in wanting and longing and seeing Jesus, then this is not a promise for you, but rather it's an invitation. It's an invitation to you. That Jesus is showing himself to be the everlasting joy. It's an invitation to say, come to Jesus. Come to me. Come when you're weary. Come when you're broken. Come when you're sorrowful. And I'll be your joy. Not the absence of these things. Me. I want to be your joy. Jesus is the only permanent joy. He's the only one. He's the only thing that's guaranteed forever. If you put your joy in anything else, it will be taken from you. What's your joy in? Is it in, is it in money? Is it success? Is it family? Oh my gosh, I struggle with this, guys. Anybody? I struggle all the time because the world around me shows me this temporary joy and beauty and identity and, and even, even church. status or sports or stuff. I get so caught up. I feel like sometimes I get caught up that my joy is somehow found in my identity or some, somehow that my ministry here will bring me some type of joy. But here's the deal. He says, no, 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 that's not an everlasting joy. I want to be your joy. I want to be your treasure. I want to be what you're longing for. If he's not the joy of your heart, he so wants to be. John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. I'm not saying that we should not Rejoice in the giving power of God. God is our provider. Amen. Amen. I'm not saying that we should not rejoice in uh, the strength of God. He is our strong tower. I'm not saying we should not rejoice in the fact that the power of God, he upholds us with his mighty right hand. I believe in those texts, and it absolutely thrills me that God promises those things to me, that he's my provider, he's my sustainer, he's my strength. But the question is, what is he giving me strength for? You ever thought of that? What's he providing to you for? What's underneath him upholding you with his strong right hand. What is the goal that God is trying to accomplish in you, being your provider, being your strength, being your sustainer? I realize that he, in all of those things, he's bringing me to a point to rejoice 
in him. He's providing himself to me, not idols. He's providing me an identity that's found in him and not other things. He's strengthening me not to be pulled aside by by trinkets and gadgets, but rather he's strengthening me to put my trust and my hope in him. You can talk about Jesus saving you, but my, my question is to what end? To what end? I find myself pushing through this all the time. I'm believing Jesus for, I'm believing Jesus for, I'm believing Jesus for this. I'm believing Jesus for Christ. More of Jesus. Now, why is this so important? Eric? Why is this such a big deal? Can't, can't I or is it not enough to just simply believe Jesus as my provider? Isn't that not enough? Is it not enough to just simply believe in Jesus as my power and my strength? I'm trusting Jesus for those things. Why is this so important? Why is it so important? Can't I just simply believe Jesus as my Savior? Important. Because if we delight in the mighty works of Jesus and not Jesus himself, then Jesus becomes the butler in the sky that we just simply go to so that he can fulfill all my other idols. Like a heavenly Santa Claus. Jesus, I need this. Jesus, I need this. And so somehow Jesus exists to serve me. And I become the focus and I become the center of glory and I become the center of my own hope and Jesus is just a stepping stone to get me what I really want. Is that not how we pray? How do you pray? Think about the last prayer that you prayed. Think about how we pray as a church, as individuals, as people. Is that not how we pray? That's why verse 23 is one of the most misquoted verses in the entire scriptures. Look at what it says. We skip right over 22. 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly I say to you, whoever, whatever you ask, whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he will give it to you. We love that verse. You mean whatever I ask? Whatever I ask, in the name of Jesus, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy may be full. Three times already up to this point, uh, he's used this ask whatever uh, phrase or, or, or uh, sentence. This is the fourth time in John 14, 13. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so as long as it's, it's, it's under the umbrella of God's glory, then you can ask whatever and it will be done. In John 15, 7, he says, if you abide in me and in my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. 
and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, I will give you. But this is the foundation of all the others. There's no necessarily parameters here in this, in this text. John 16, 23, I say to you, whoever, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. This is the foundation because whatever you ask the Father for will unveil what you rejoice in. How you pray will reflect what you rejoice in. How do you pray? Take your Bibles and turn over to James chapter 4. While you're turning there, I want to remind you of Romans 1. Romans 1 says that we become futile in our thinking. Our foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise. We became fools. And we exchanged the glory of God for things that God made. And so we worship And we long the created things rather than the creator of all things. And in James chapter 4 is a picture of how we use prayer and turns God into a cuckold. Do you know what a cuckold is? It's an old-fashioned term. It's an old-fashioned term for a man who's been cheated on by his wife. That's what it is. James chapter 4, look in verse 2. You desire, and you do not have, so you murder. You covet, and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. And you do not have, because you do not ask. You ask, and you do not receive, because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend in the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so he's accusing these people of praying to God. They're praying. And they're asking God, this is a picture of a woman cheating on her husband. A bride on her groom, a church on her God. Look in verse 5. Or do you not suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Do you not know that he yearns jealously over you? This is a picture of a husband to his wife that he's yearning for her. 
that he wants her. He's, he's desiring her. He says, he says, will you be mine? Will you be completely mine? Will you, will you be with me? I want you to be myself. I'm jealous of all these other guys. Will you just simply be mine? And you know what she's doing? While the, the husband yearns over her, what's she doing? She's praying. She's praying. And she gets down on her knees and she says, oh, husband. Husband, will you, will you give me $50? In your great mercies, husband, will you, will you give me $50? And so the husband, he, he gives her $50, and you know what she does with it? She gets up, and she walks out of the room and down the hall and pays the $50 to sleep with another man. God yearns jealously because he wants you And we say, God, we don't want you. We want your stuff. If we don't rejoice in Jesus, being our everlasting joy, then we become an adulterous people. That's why it's so important. Because over and over again, I find myself asking God to give me to other husbands. You do that? I believe right now the Holy Spirit is revealing to some of us that Jesus is what you need. When you become what the Bible refers to as born again, Jesus becomes what you want. And so it affects how we pray. Hear me. Look at me. We will not know what prayer is for until we understand that our life is at war. John Piper says that. We don't know what prayer is for until we know that our life is at war, that there is a battle for every one of my affections. It's not a battle against flesh and blood. It's a battle for my heart. The fight that I would desire to see him and know him and love him and treasure him to fight for my affections that he would be my complete joy. And so I must pray. I need to pray not for other husbands, but I need to pray daily for more of God. That I would fall in love with more of God. That I would rejoice in Jesus himself. That I would cry out and say, God, I'm under attack here. Because my heart is going away on these other affections. I would say, God, I need some firepower here. I need you to fill my heart. I need the Holy Spirit to help convict me and show me righteousness and judgment. I need some cover here. That's what prayer is for. 
That's why we cry out to God. Listen, it's not wrong to pray uh, against sickness. It's not wrong to pray for your kids. It's not wrong to pray for a good job. It's not wrong to pray for a place to live. It's not wrong to pray for blessings. But only if we want those things above him. May we be a church that infinitely knows Jesus is our joy so that our joy would be full. Listen, what would happen? What would happen if a church stopped pretending to know Jesus and starts asking Jesus for more of himself? Oh, Jesus, yeah, when I was eight, had... A taste of Jesus, it was good. What if, we, what if we as a church begin to ask Jesus for more of himself, to manifest more of himself, to ask to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6? What if that was our cry? But let me tell you, if it was, ask, and it'll be given to you. That's what Jesus says. Ask. Whatever you ask, it'll be given. And in your momentary sorrow, it will turn into an everlasting joy. And I'm going to close with verse 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that, here it is, in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Hear me. Peace. And joy does not come from the absence of tribulation. Peace and joy comes from being in Christ. In the world, you will have sorrow. You will have tribulation. But in me, oh, in me, there's peace. In me, there's an everlasting joy. If your joy is in other things besides Jesus, in the end, it will be taken. But if your joy is in Jesus, seeing Jesus, more of Jesus, then no matter what the world throws at you, you'll have peace. Amen. As the band comes up, I just want to talk to you for just a minute. The band's going to play and give us a time to reflect on the words. But maybe you're here today, and maybe the Holy Spirit has been tugging on your hearts. I know He is mine. Maybe you're here today and the Holy Spirit has been 
revealing to you that there is a real battle going on for your affections. That there is, there is joy that is at stake. Joy for your life, joy for your family. Well, I have, I have a particular suggestion. I've been encouraging myself with it all week. Now I'll encourage you, encourage you with it. Pray. You thought I was going to say something really profound there. Pray. I was thinking about this, and in reality, most Christians don't pray very much. I mean, yeah, we pray over our meals. Yeah, maybe when we're having a tough decision, we need to pray, or we're about to have a big meeting or something, we'll pray. Or, Or maybe you'll pray before you go to bed. But very few Christians actually set time to pray. Fewer probably actually think it's worth it. Just sad. Wonder why our faith is weak. We wonder why our hope is fleeting. We wonder why our passion for Christ is so dull. We wonder why our joy is just conditional. Pray. We've got to pray. Because life is war, guys. So I'll encourage you with this. Pray. Set aside time every day and pray. Don't don't leave it to chance. Pray. Combine it with, with reading the scriptures so that you know the glory of God in your prayers. Make the aim of your prayers the glory of God and seeing Him and knowing Him and treasuring Him. What if we pray that we would fall in love more and more and more with Jesus? So maybe an example is that you would pray for your own soul, pray for your own affections, and then pray that your family would rejoice in the the treasures that are in Christ. Pray for that for my family and my kids. Pray for, pray for your coworkers. Pray for your neighbors that they too would treasure and value seeing Jesus more than just simply a need being met. Our greatest need is Jesus. Our city is at war. Our families are at war. Your souls are at war. Your affections are at stake. Your joy is at stake. Listen, I hate the devil. Oh, but he's done such a good job with some of us distracting us and persuading us as Christians that that prayer is silly. We even call prayer legalistic. Somehow the devil's just reminded us that we we should do other things besides pray. Listen, if we don't eat, we starve. If you don't drink, you get dehydrated. If you don't exercise, your muscles will deteriorate you don't breathe, you suffocate. If we don't pray that Jesus becomes what 
we rejoice in, then our affections and our joy in Him, it'll be replaced with whatever it is that we're hoping for. But if we do ask, He says you will receive. God, I need that. You know? God, I need that. I pray that for you. Will you join me? Jesus. so many times that I delight in so many other things besides you. Jesus, I know that my joy cannot be found in those things because they're fleeting. Jesus, I know I can only be a good husband because my joy is in you. I know I can only be a good father my joy is in you. I can only be the man that you've called me to be when my joy is in you. And so, Jesus, I ask right now, very personally, that you would show me that by the Holy Spirit, God, you would show me you would convict me where I place my joy in other stuff and other things. Lead me today in faith and repentance so that my joy would be found in you, so my joy would be made full. Jesus, help me. Help us in your name, in Jesus' name.